Hello listeners, it's Jack here. South London Hardcore is back for a little while. This week's episode is the ninth volume of our South London playlist, which features the KLF, Cockney Rebel, The Beatles and more. We recorded this in May 2018 and Stephen Graham returns to illuminate and educate. That's coming up in a moment. First, let me tell you about my new web series, Gloss. It's a deadpan comedy starring Emilio Iannucci and Adrian McLaughlin, who are both in The Death of Stalin. In the pilot episode, the hapless Dennis finds himself press-ganged into volunteering at his local charity shop, whilst his oafish uncle Brian decides against attending his wife's funeral when it clashes with the football. Let's hear a clip. Auntie Irene? What happened? She's dead. How long's she been there? What time's that antiques programme on? There's no pulse. Well, there won't be. She's dead. Have you called an ambulance? <laughs> Phone's broke. How do you get teletext off this? Was she ill? Must have been. You'll have to do dinner. I wrote and directed Gloss. You can watch it at glosswebseries.com and vimeo.com slash glosswebseries. Or open the Vimeo or YouTube app on your TV and find it on there. Right, on with the show. Welcome to South London Hardcore. I'm Jack McEnroy and my co-host is Steve Walsh. Hello. Our guest this week, as we compile another South London playlist is Stephen Graham. Hello. Welcome back to the show, Stephen. A resident musicologist. <laughs> so I was describing. And friend. But, you know, number one resident musicologist. Track number one is Bridget St. John, Ask Me No Questions. Take nothing with you I'll give you everything I can Have no this just doing a search for South London musicians it's always the best place not, to start not it? organic at all some of these choices are organic aren't they some of these things we stumble upon or hear because of other things but this was was uh, quite sort of clunky in that sense and it's a bit frustrating because a lot of interviews and profiles say British was born in South London uh, but don't say where but we have to take it on the word of the internet that she is from South London but the interesting thing about her I think is I'd never heard of her before this but it seems like she's got quite an interesting place in the music of the time. She's like, her mentor was uh, John Martin uh, as a sort of guitarist and singer. And, and no, I don't want to know. <laughs> now, leave the singing. He just, uh, just stepped into the room there for <laughs> seconds. Imagine. <laughs> but the thing that really fascinated me was the fact that um, her stuff was picked on very quickly by John Peel. And this is like pre punk John Peel, of course. So he's very 
immersed in the folk scene. And from what I can, uh, can gather, um, he enjoyed her work so much he formed a record company so that she could make a record and release it. Are you a fan of John Martin, Stephen? I love John Martin, yeah, he's great. Solid I really wanted to continue that when he started singing there, but I held back. <laughs> Don't get the guitar. <laughs> and he plays on this, doesn't he? Mm. Yeah. He plays yeah. guitar on it. It's really noticeable as well. That kind of tumbling, jangly, drony acoustic guitar. Which sounds like it's in open tuning, but it's not, I don't think, in this case. Yeah, he plays a lot of really distinctive open tunings where you don't know how he's fingering the chords, but it's because he's got his own kind of open tuning. So um, he's not doing that here, but yeah. And it's produced by John Peel, and I think that's quite an interesting thing. Because I've always sort of imagined, you know, John Peel has a very strong vision of music, doesn't he? But like, if you gave him... Sorry. We've got, a, we've got another guest, Xavier. <laughs> Young Xavier McEnroe, who uh, but wasn't born when we started doing the show. But, Sav, if you could just keep talking to a minimum, less is relevant, and you're breathing a bit loud as well. <laughs> She's doing the director's commentary on Shopkin season one. Yeah. And I, I do think the, the sort of uh, sort of production or the sound of this is quite interesting, where you have that bit at the end where it's sort of fades yeah, out the music and brings up the field sound and then brings it down and brings the music back up uh, and I, I think that is the sort of thing where you can imagine them in the studio sort of going should we do this jumping yeah. should definitely it'll make it seven minutes long perfect you don't understand I've, I've, I'm also the DJ <laughs> I'm not going to turn this down um, yeah so uh, I, I do think it's a it's a, a very nice track as well I was completely intrigued by it I'd never heard of her before no, and I'm really no, into no, that no, whole no. strain of folk from and I'd say the John 60s. Martin connection you'd imagine she'd have a higher profile yeah. just you know well, especially of... with, with like Vashti Bunyan and, and Shirley Collins getting this this kind of platform the last few years but never heard of this person but uh, I can't believe it because her her voice and her kind of presence is so awkward it's so like Nico by way of John Martin right, it's right. so unusual like the Germanic vowels and the class and all that stuff—it's <laughs> really weird mix. But she does, she she does a few albums essentially around this time, and then and then essentially disappears from music for like twenty years. Mm. And now does things. She moved over to New York and still does things from time to time. But I think it is that thing of, particularly as you say, at a time when people are sort of rediscovering yeah. uh, a lot of things from that era. That it's, it's interesting. She hasn't sort of emerged more organically. You can kind of understand why though, because there is that kind of weird, janky. Germanic kind of awkward, almost like uncanny. Yeah, it's not easy listening folk because no. it is quite. But I quite like that. again, that's what I quite yeah, like about it. Very intriguing. Mm. You can imagine her at some kind of outsider festival; people would eat her up. <laughs> yeah, I enjoyed it too, Steve. Track two: Skengdo and AM fire in the booth. Yeah, man, taking them back. Hey, the melodies day, you know. Awesome. <laughs> now it gets. Mm. Man, act so silly, why you got act so dumb, dumb, dumb? Why, man? Hey. Get him, man, get him. When the gang cut you, don't act like you don't run, run, run. Panic, boom! Man, act so silly, why you got act so dumb, dumb, dumb? When the gang cut you, don't act like you don't run, run, run. I got time for that noddy, but I want funds, funds, funds. Don't flash all your money, go give your money to mum, mum, mum. So, is it right to say, Steve, that Fire in the Booth is basically the 2018 equivalent of a pill session. I guess it is, yeah, yeah. 
but a bit more intrusive, and it. Peel would sit there. Actually, the peel sessions were recorded separately. <laughs> no air horn noise. <laughs> yes. <in the future>. <laughs> <laughs> peel was never there going, if I could just throw some Street Fighter 2 samples <laughs> at any point oh, randomly. Yeah. Yes. I, I don't know. Like, um, I've never sort of heard performers talk about the particular format of it, but I think it would annoy me if I'm trying to do something, particularly something rhythmic. And like, there are points, where, like, I'm, you know, you're a big fan of uh, drops on that, that pod. What's the podcast you used to talk to me about? Oh, the champs. Yeah, and I always yeah. thought it sounded like a terrible idea. This, just this guy randomly in another room, essentially pressing buttons, going, I think now I'll make this noise. And you're like, I'm trying to put together a train of thought here. And particularly, I think, if you're doing... <laughs> <laughs> If you're trying to, to perform music, and, unless, you know, it's been... And I guess they know the situation going in, so they're not going to, like, jump and go, what was that? <laughs> but, yeah, it must uh, sort of uh, disrupt their rhythm. But what I like about this performance is... Um, there seems a sort of uh, a willful move on their part, particularly Am's part, to disrupt their own rhythm. You know, in the first, his first verse, where he stops and pulls out his phone and orders some Chinese food. That was and amazing. It, it throws the DJ completely, doesn't it? He's like, I thought you'd lost it. And it's interesting because uh, Sando is reading his lyrics off his phone and Am's just sort of freestyling. It does look like he's sort of like, oh, maybe he's got something in his notes. But then beyond that as well, you know, it's a long, is it eight or 11 minutes? It's a long, because yeah, uh, it's two of them. Um, but uh, there are moments in it, there's a bit where he drops some French in, he drops some Spanish in, and uh, he also managed to incorporate binary code and Morse code yeah. into his freestyle as well. So people are like, this guy's throwing out five languages if you count computer languages. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I thought it was, um, uh, you know, as I say, not all 11 minutes are brilliant which is I think in the nature of most freestyles not all fire not all fire in the booth but um, yeah some some uh, tremendous stuff in there and the thing that really appealed to me about them as a pair is uh, they're from Myatt's Field like yeah. I can't trace what part of South London uh, Bridget St John <laughs> Brenda St John <laughs> <laughs> uh, Bridget John's from but these guys, you can almost like you know, because yeah. Mitesfield is not Super a big, specific it's area. not a big area, yeah. is it? Where is that? It's uh, it's in Campbell, so between, between Campbell and Brixton, Brixton. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's a very, it's it's you know only I don't know a few hundred yards. Yeah, of yeah square exactly. I mean, it's a park. Basically. Yeah, yeah. So it's you, you can go hyper local in terms right. of tracking down um, uh, where they're from. But they they do seem to be very much on the rise. Also, learn about this track. I discovered. <laughs> it's <Sonic awesome>. cool. <laughs> perfect <laughs> it does put you off um, <laughs> they um, put me off in terms of <laughs> yeah. oh uh, yes uh, learn about track. I learned about the, the phrase drill music which I've never heard of before which is a sort of grime subculture that's like dark and nihilistic and I was like does that need a separate word right. yeah drill D-R-I-L I, think, <laughs> I don't know if it's one or two of uh, but yeah uh, there definitely needs to be subcultures and subgenres of grime I think by this stage yeah, the, 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 yeah it's interesting isn't it yeah that there is but yeah just that uh, sort of uh, specificity to it yeah but yeah um, I, I do think particularly AM is uh, uh, very good vocalist is he the one who's closer to the camera no he's, he's, the, he's the one the balaclava further away from the camera the other uh, and the thing is, uh, the, in the, the YouTube comments, there's some interesting stuff where they're wearing like a balaclava and uh, glasses to protect their identity, but then the camera's like two inches from their face. <laughs> <laughs> Why was he wearing a balaclava? 
um, they they don't want their public identity to be known or their face to be recognised or to be. Because I didn't know. I did, I'd never heard of them. Yeah, no. Uh, yeah, uh, I sort of stumbled across them. I think just on YouTube, looking yeah. at another grime track, and uh, and and also there was a lot of hype around this particular part in the booth because of the guy doing these uh, wild and wonderful things with his vocals. Yeah, I mean, I I spent a lot of time weirdly. I I, I really like grime, but I'd never count myself as a massive insider well obviously I'm not an insider but like a huge <laughs> fan because I just don't like immerse myself into it but I've always liked it and then I examined a PhD upgrade recently on grime right PhD upgrade is something that you do a year or two into when you're doing a PhD because you initially register as a, an MPhil student usually and to protect the institution in case you're, you're crap basically and you don't do good work and then they can say we'll give you an MPhil as a kind of an exit award and you don't get to do a PhD so you have to do an upgrade as you're doing a PhD and this guy uh, his name is Alexander De Lacey, I suppose it's not a, a secret. Uh, he's a grime DJ, and he's he's on the scene, but he's do, also doing kind of a immersive like ethnographic research as he's doing his practice. Like, so he's in a crew, and they go and do sets at like rinse or wherever, and he's also kind of thinking and researching as he's doing it, and he's written it all up, and it's really amazing and really interesting. So I examined that, and for that, I had to listen to like 10 different hour-long grime sets and loads of different uh, MCs. And coming away from that, I was completely... found a new appreciation for the different techniques, like the through-ball and, and the rally and the reload and all these different structural things that they're doing in the sets to collaborate with each other and do these really intricate um, kind of um, group kind of uh, practice, basically. Um, and in this one, I was fascinated because the whole energy of it was completely different to all the sets I've been watching. It was much more laid back and kind of conversation to the point where I was watching it and I kept thinking, is this some kind of practical joke? Yeah. <laughs> Not that I didn't find things in it were really interesting, especially like the phone moment and things like yeah. that, but I found the flow so kind of conversational and almost like parodic like and mm. slow and kind of like, oh, oh, and stumbly. I really wasn't sure where I stood and I kind of waited the whole time thinking the rug was going to be pulled out. It's Elvis did a drop as well. <laughs> You're hungry, okay. <laughs> you can have a, you can have some food between. Perfect. <laughs> no, I, I I do agree in terms of the flow. It's it's unlike stuff, but I also think um, you know the fact that one of them is literally reading off his phone took a lot away from the performance for me, and I thought it really sort of came to life much more when AM got to the. Moment. But that's interesting because in all those sets I was watching. Half the time they'd be out on their phones. Yeah, yeah. They'd no, just it written is. it out, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. But, yeah, it, very strange interplay between the two of them. Although, good chemistry, I thought. They yeah, they're clearly, off each they're other clearly friends. Well. And you can see as well, what's nice as well is you can see him sort of taking joy in each one's achievements. Yeah, Like, yeah. the bit where he's dropping, uh, yeah. like, the Morse code. The other one's just, like, a massive grin in his face. He's like, they're going to love this. And he's right. People yeah, yeah. Do, yeah, AM yeah. was really good, actually. Yeah, but, um, he, he, he's certainly my favourite of the two in yeah. terms of... I couldn't get over the DJ though. My God. Yeah. He Hell is not just, The white guys on the ground scene just seem to be really overcompensating. It just seems this odd thing to sort of invite people uh, into your studio to perform specifically. Yeah. And sort of go, but of course, we know what everyone's here for. Me. Yeah. So I better just shout how good you are. Uh, you know, give you a running critique. I mean, is it's that entertaining not... in a, like a Trumpian kind of way. It yeah, absolutely. Like... Yeah. Uh, why, did, why are you not um, talking about John Pill's field sounds as a drop though, Steve? That's is that not, very interesting is that not the equivalent of a... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
just get these sparrows and turn them up. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's true that Peel had as much of a, a branding mm. in that stuff than, than this chap, Charlie, whatever, Slop is that his name? I think it is, yeah, Charlie Slop. Yeah. In this one. So it's, it's, a, it's a fair comparison, actually. Yeah. And you can make, you know, criticisms of Peel, you know, famously he would sometimes play records at the wrong speed and not realise, yeah. because it was such odd stuff that he was playing. So that was from last year. Next track is also from last year, 2017. Goat Girl, Drool. what I understand is they sort of met and formed and sort of played their first few gigs at the Windmill in Brixton so very much a product um, of South London um, I quite like it as a track it's, it's not, there's nothing groundbreaking there is it? and I quite like the video as well uh, just I mean, some, some girls in the car going off to bury someone isn't it? I mean the first thing to say is just like a wholesale rip off of uh, the coral Carol Dreaming of You yeah big time hold on you're telling me this bookmakers have done an album <laughs> No, the, the second I, I came on, I thought, hang on. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I know of the call, but I've never knowingly heard the so that's call. So that was the kind of big first hit. Right. Um, yeah. And it's got a very distinctive bass riff. Okay. It it's just wholesale. wholesale. Yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. Which is all right, I think. Yeah, no, that's <clears> a part of music as much as anything yeah. else, isn't it? Well, I mean, we'll get to, uh, you know, a band later on that kind of made their entire fortune. Oh, yeah, exactly. Of... But very creative. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But I don't know, it kind of, it's the sort of thing that sort of makes me feel a bit old that, I mean, it used to be that sort of the coral were the one that you go, oh, that was the, yeah. they've just lifted that. Right, 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 you know, right. I mean, and even that you can go back, I mean, we're old enough that, I mean, obviously I'm not as old as you, Steve. Um, <laughs> but you know, there's... That's a very unfair thing to say to our guests. But you know, you could go even go back like a generation before, not a gen, like a micro generation before yeah, the coral yeah. of, and I can sort of, this is the sort of thing that helps me see why people that are sort of 10, 15 years older than me yeah. didn't take this, the music seriously that right. I like Brit, yeah. Britpop essentially yeah. I liked as a to be fair kid. my selection of this track was rather I, I do like the song and I, say I really like the video but um, rather than choosing it for any sort of great music innovation I think this is like a sound that will sweep uh, the country I, you know, I love it um, I think the, the thing that I, I like about it is the sort of the fact that you were getting new music formula in South London yeah. and I think one of the things a way to sort of like tie this into I don't think they've got any sort of particular relation to it but um DIY Space for London uh, do this regular, I think it's every few months, they do this thing called First Timers. And the premise is um, you, you perform as a band, but you're never allowed to have been in a band together before. I want you hungry. <laughs> <laughs> <Just> hungry. <laughs> I've got to address this in uh, between tracks. Yeah, feeding my just... children. Listen, if you use the Amazon link on southlandhardcore.com, yeah, <laughs> they can have feed my children. <laughs> 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 you know, we still need, we still got costs, man. Um, and and with first timers, I think there's sort of particular rules where that's be a gender balance within there, and um, it 
also uh, as part of that as well they seem to do monthly sort of workshops where it encourages people who have never picked up a bass guitar or drums before to go along and get very sort of uh, you know uh, direct uh, advice and help mm. from someone who's you know an experienced drummer or bass player so I, I think it's it's nice that as I say I don't think this is a, directly a product of that system but the idea that you've got a place a space in South London where bands are forming organically, but a place in South London that's also sort of helping to develop and encourage people to form bands. Oh, it's an amazing venue. They do great stuff. I've never been. Never been. It sort of like became a thing just as I was leaving. There's a really good festival coming up there in a couple of weeks. <coughs> <coughs> is that what it's called? <laughs> it's an outside of festival, isn't it? <laughs> it actually is outside of the noise festival. <laughs> in a couple of weeks. That noise definitely got outside. <laughs> no, it's amazing. The space for none. Yeah, this band, it, it uh, Goat Girl, apart from having a quite a suggestive name, Isabel saw in, in the history last night after I'd been listening to it, and she said, finally, I've discovered your porn history. <laughs> she thought it had been something I'd look it up, Goat Girl. I don't know the origin of the Just name. It's like girl and an animal, I suppose. Okay. <laughs> I suppose. Yeah, I, I, nothing, it's not, nothing to do with my taste around, but, uh, but yeah, they, they, they remind me, because their age, I suppose, like the age is just stinking off them, I thought. Yeah. And yeah. the attitude. And that... Listen, Xavier, please wait until we finish. Come on, this. Oh, my God. Yeah, look, listen, you have to wait two more minutes, all right? One more minute. One more minute. Um... Yeah, and and because of that, because the age kind of sticking off them, they felt very much like you know a band I'd get in one of my classes. They show up and and they but they were good. They were good at that, you know. And in a very post libertines way, there was a lot of energy to them, and skankiness and gunk and <laughs> so on. So and I enjoyed it. So Stephen, you're a um, you work at the uh, the Goldsmiths University. Yeah. <laughs> So I always get that. It's going to be his full title. The Goldsmith University. And uh, what's. Yeah, what are you? Lecturer. Lecturer, yeah, right. So people still like do like rock music. Well, in our classes, it's really interesting because the tendency nowadays is to, for them to do really interesting electronic based music, mm. um, whether they're solo artists or a group, um, you know, James Blake type stuff, if they're more interesting or. Um, whatever but it's not usually very mainstream in, in our department it's a little bit more off the beaten track um, but you do still get a rear um, there's, because of the huge groundswell of, of you know identity politics and all that stuff you get a group usually who will do kind of riot girl type stuff like okay. so kind of punky or post punky um, and often a lineup of like three lesbians will get up and they'll do really rough sounding punk um, so I kind of had it in that kind of vein I suppose and uh, and then you you will always get just as a kind of a, a tangent. You will always get the odd like a little indie boy doing his kind of um, blur type stuff, but they stand out. They're a bit odd. Those 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 boys. They're uh, the outsiders. Yeah, they're the outsiders. Yeah, very <laughs> much so. Um, but yeah, it's it's electronica or it's kind of really rough punk stuff. Track four is from nineteen sixty one. Charlie Drake, my boomerang won't come back. <laughs> In the bad back lands of Australia Many years ago The Aborigine tribes were meeting Having a big wow. We got a lot of trouble, Chief On account of your son, Mac My boy, Mac, why? What's wrong with him? Our boomerang won't come back your boomerang won't come back. My boomerang won't come back. 
Charlie Drake from uh, Elephant Castle, 1925 to 2006. This is a, a track and performance probably wouldn't be encouraged at first time as now. Isn't it? Like, we've sort of gone from very progressive modern stuff to, uh, you know, uh, problematic material from, uh, you know, a different time, is I believe how they phrase it. Problematic in that time as well. I yeah, think. that's the thing, isn't it? Like, uh, it does seem like people, even at the time, were sort of like, whoa. Yeah. Which says something. If you can do something in 1961 where people are like, this isn't acceptable, but you're I, racist. I listened to it and I thought, I bet, because the, the easy thing for your mind to do is to say, oh, back then. But I thought, no, I bet there was an issue and I went and read and there yeah, was. Yeah. yeah, it's quite concerning how you hear back then about like the 90s and stuff now, isn't it? Like, you know, racism was fine like 12 years ago. Yeah. So hang on a minute. <laughs> yeah, so it's a racist novel you hear, isn't it? Essentially, um, yeah. he did a he later did a cover of um, "Please, Mr. Custer," which is quite quite similar, right. uh, similar vein. So yeah, it's a sort of song I imagine that the people on the wharf now and then Facebook group. <laughs> if you, yeah, if you suggested it wasn't good, they'd be like, "Unbelievable!" This yeah. is all from the modern. They'd be annoyed that we'd waited till 161 episodes before we covered my boomerang won't come back. What, what's wrong with describing a collection of uh, Australian Aborigines as a powwow? That's what it is. Because I think with power and the sort of the, the sort of music that they sort of uh, ascribe to that celebration uh, is basically what you mean is they're not white. Yeah. These these people that you're talking about, and it, after that, it's all fair game, isn't it? You know, everything's the same if it's uh, not white stuff at this point. It's just the dictionary definition of like exoticism. It's like everything yeah. that's not us is, is just yeah. one. You know, yeah, it's the other. You like never... the African accents, the Afrikaans accents, the the witch doctor thing, which is, as far as I know, not an, an Aboriginal. They do actually have witch. They do they? Yeah, okay. I, I checked that as well because I was like, is this a thing? I thought that was just... an African. It, it is, but there's also. I bet you did more okay. research than Charlie Drake. <laughs> yeah, when I say that, I don't think Charlie Drake was like, oh, good, I found uh, documentary evidence that means we can as- uh, ascribe the notion of witch doctory to the Aboriginal people of Australia. Now we're perfect. <laughs> now we're good to go. <laughs> There was a fey English voice in there at one point. I mean, the thing is, uh, you know, I, I don't know why I feel the need to balance this by praising him. He's clearly a very good performer, isn't he? Like, he can do funny voices. There's no doubt about that. Like, But it's just what he chooses to say with these funny voices. Well, I was wondering, because I was thinking, okay, so we have all the, the problematic stuff, right. which is one thing. That's We, we can kind of clearly recognise that and identify that, and that's, that's all well and good. But... Leaving that aside for a moment, what were people getting from this track? Was it just a kind of a, a tingling of those of those bones of, of prejudice that they were enjoying, or was there something else to it? I'm not sure. What do you think? Like, why was it so popular? Well, yeah, it was. It reached number fourteen in the UK, number one in Australia. And to it's get to not... fourteen in those days was difficult. Like, it wasn't like oh, it was yeah. now where you'd, you'd easily just game it and, and stream whatever. But yeah, because it's not it's not catchy, is it? No. Although I did find myself singing it around the house and then the kids started singing it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but, but I think, I think with, with songs like that, particularly at that time, you have a lot of PSL stuff that's similar, yeah. sort of like, you know, problematic. Um, and it's essentially, it's a sketch, isn't it? It's not a song, it's a comedy sketch. And it has a good punchline. Well, um, well it has a punchline. Yeah, absolutely. I, it's what I was going to say, there is an, definitely an element of, of uh, performativity there that's good. Yeah. Like, he's yeah. clearly a good performer. So I, I, can, I can absolutely understand people. And it is... You know, it sounds again like a very sort of simplistic take on it, but it's at a time when 
not everyone still not everyone's got a record uh, a yeah. TV that's still a relatively new thing so your record player was probably still the prime sort mm-hmm. of piece of entertainment in the house so the idea of getting a comedy record to go along with your classical records and your jazz records and your you know rock and pop records such as they were at the time um, it was like you know comedy records were uh, huge in the UK and as I say I think it's it's more sketch stuff rather than stand-up. You're still talking about, you know, music hall is still within mm-hmm. living memory as, as a, you know, a, again, a prime piece of, uh, uh, you know, entertainment. And he's very much from that tradition. This yeah. feels like very... You can imagine it on stage, can't you? You know? Yeah, yeah. Even more of a mess than just the sounds. <laughs> you can imagine it as well as kind of family entertainment. Like, just the generations getting Exactly, it, you know? yeah. Your dad's giggling at the racist stuff. The grandparents, the kid, younger yeah. kids. So, yeah. I mean, um, your kids love it, Jay. <laughs> Marlo was singing it. Only, the, only my boomerang won't come. Right, right, right. Um, it's but like when you when you mentioned uh, when you put on the list, Steve, fire in the booth. My first thought was, "Man's not hot." And we were right. we were at the breakfast table one day, and Zab was just going, "Man's not hot." Like, it felt like a milestone for me. <laughs> you know, like you kids at the table singing that. But that was the only line she knew. I thought it was, I don't know. I can't remember what all the lyrics are, but it literally was just that line over and over again. Quick raps in that. Yeah. But he was uh, he was like a big star, wasn't he, Charlie yeah. Drake of like TV and stuff, right? Yeah, it surprised me. I'd never knew he was from South London because we'd done. Well, I never heard of him. Episodes. Did you I... heard of him, Stephen? No, I was going to say, did you guys? Well, you, you wouldn't have heard of him. I say, like I, I remember him sort of like turning up on sort of with like Max Bygraves, like it's very yeah. much the royal royal variety performance, and he would sort of turn up. You know, think I mentioned doing things with Freddie, so I can't remember specifically where I've seen yeah. him. He would have turned up like a generation game and stuff like that. Yeah. He was very much, you know, early 80s would have been, you know, not a fixture on TV, but certainly yeah. a name that you would know. Right, okay. Again, this is me showing my age compared to, age and geographical location. <laughs> so compared to YouTube. Did you go back and watch his, um, his stuff, Steve? Like the work, he had an ITV show called The Worker. Uh, I didn't, know. Yeah, I watched a little bit. Did you, uh, which I thought it'd be up your street, you know, musical sort of vaudeville, it, isn't it? But it is that thing of like, I mean, it uh, it's not aged well. That's the no. thing. It probably like, wasn't that good at the time. The, 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 the stuff I like from that period tends not to be things like the work. I mean, I'm sure you read the same thing as me that there's only one episode uh, in colour, like the most, yeah, yeah. yeah and that's uh, uh, an episode where he's in blackface. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and of that, course, there's a line on this track which is yes, the most offensive line. Of course, yeah. Uh, and that's the thing, like, reading about it, like, I was like, oh, Charlie Drake. But I think just listening to the song just made me weary. And then reading about this, and I was like, I don't want to, like, no. see yeah. much more of this. Well, I, watched it, really. the, I watched a little bit. Um, so he was five foot one, the guy. And there's there's a great line in the Guardian obituary um, talking about, like, his decline from of, in popularity. It says, uh, facially, the innocent-looking little cherub had aged into a faintly malevolent goblin. Oh, God. <laughs> um, and he was getting too old for the trademark violent slapstick, slapstick stunts. Um, I mean, he ended up doing, like, Pinter and Shakespeare, and he did Bleak House on BBC Two in his later right. years. So yeah, I don't really remember him as the cherub, but I do remember him as Panto with as Jim the Davidson. That, that, exactly, yeah. That's, yeah. The sort of, that's probably where you remember him. That's, yeah, that would be it. <laughs> do you know about the bookcase incident? No. So he used to do this kind of shtick where, you know, it was slapstick stuff. And there was, I don't know if it was regularly that he would, like, a bookcase would collapse on him. Like, as part of the kind of yeah. thing. But there was certainly this one time where, that, so this bookcase was, like, rigged up to, like, he could, like, go through it and it'd be fine. Um, they sort of conflicted. His, he, he thinks that, like, another carpenter came along and, oh, that's not right. And, you know, started, like, tightening up screws and stuff. There is some talk that 
it was like he was such a monster that um, someone was, someone was just, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but basically like this on videos on YouTube yeah we'll share the link on uh, SLHC uh, Twitter and Facebook slash SLHC probably isn't it <laughs> um, so he gets dragged through this bookcase and gets like knocked clean out through it you know he comes through it but obviously like the shelves all the shelves don't give or whatever and so this guy like there's a guy I'm not sure what the scenario is but there's a guy in like a in like a lab coat or whatever like kind of dragging him about um, you know like kind of tossing about like I don't know if he's like meant to be waking him up or what but like he's just limp Charlie Drake he's just like his arms are good. it's just like a dead weight and then like he's like spark out and then another guy comes along like I guess it's live on TV because like rather than realising that he's been knocked out they then throw him through a glass window <laughs> like a sugar glass window and then Apparently a glazer came along and went, this is a glass in a very seriously. So, but he's meant to, like the gag, like I've seen it in another clip as well, his gag is that he then runs back in the door and I can't remember what he's catching. Isn't it marvellous? Or something? It's not that. It's uh, he's say like, oh, is it you lovely people or something? It, I think it was you lovely people. So yeah. he's meant to come in and he's just they're just standing there waiting for him to come in but he's obviously just laying in oh, a pile of like whimper. sugar glass. No, not even whimp, just like uh, not completely out. And then the credits just roll. <laughs> there's that short lived thing of snuff comedy I don't know if you remember it <laughs> but there's a great um, there's a great line on the Wikipedia page for the uh, for the single um, the record was produced by George Martin who went on to even more enduring yeah, yeah. fame by producing the Beatles <laughs> <laughs> I would say uh, just in terms of production apparently George Martin obviously had no access to Aboriginal instruments mm. so it's him using studio techniques to replicate them and mm-hmm. like again the sound I think there is good and incredible and mm. to his work, but yeah, it doesn't balance out against the, no. the other stuff. I don't know how hard it would have been to I, I have a no didgeridoo. Idea. It's like a few voices and a yeah, toilet roll tube, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, George White. <laughs> Speaking of which, Steve, our next track is She Loves You by the Beatles at Centennial Hall, Adelaide, Australia. The 12th of June, 1964. She loves you, and you know you should be glad. So, no obvious link to South London. I mean, they're from Liverpool, famous. I don't know if you know this, Stephen. <laughs> I know you're... A... <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah uh, it's one of the things I love in the show where we get to like drag in stuff that is apparently entirely unrelated. This is the Beatles in Australia. They're not even playing in Deptford. So, John Lennon, George Harrison, Paul McCartney, and Ringo Starr tonsillitis... So rather than cancelling the tour, they brought in Jimmy Nickel for Battersea. He was like he'd been knocking about playing the various bands. You know the Two Eyes Coffee Bar. Oh yeah. It was at Soho, yeah. Yeah, Soho. Yeah, he was like a regular there apparently. Ringo collapsed with tonsillitis. That sounds extreme, yeah. doesn't it? Well, I came quite close to tonsillitis this week. I thought that's what I had, but it turned out just to be a, a viral infection. Not quite tonsillitis. And we were about to replace you with a South Londoner. <laughs> <laughs> 
without um, any of my style or flair, I imagine. But was he? I, I don't know the background. Was he Ringo's drum tech at all? Like, why was he in Australia? That seems he wasn't. They, oh, were, they played all over. They didn't just play in Australia. He was with the Beatles for two weeks. Oh, he, he was part of the tour. Yeah, yeah. He was with the Beatles for two weeks, and so they hired with the Beatles. No pun intended. Um, <laughs> they uh, hired him. There was some debate about whether to get a replacement or not. They're only playing about nine or ten shows a night. Um, so they uh, nine or ten songs a night. Yeah, I should yeah. say. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, they played like they played in Europe, and then they went to they went um, they went to Australia and back again. So yeah, they threw Jimmy Nickel in, and you know if you watch the video on YouTube, yeah. like there's not even a note really to save. You just sort of you're watching the end of the bit. It's the height of Beatlemania, and yeah. it's a like screaming. Yeah. yeah. And stuff. It's the hairdos, it's the suits. Yeah. It's, it's, and that, like, the they, song was always like classic phase one Beatles, isn't it? The yeah. woos and the. They've, I mean, they throw the haircut and the suit on him. And like, it's the sort of thing where people, most people watching it probably wouldn't even, you wouldn't even notice, would you? It's just quite like low resolution news footage. Um, but the guy at the back on the drums is not Ringo. And do you think, do you think it would have made much of a difference? I don't him? think the crowd would have necessarily known because mm. it's, it's such a different media culture at that point that although it was very much based on images and magazines and so on, it wasn't the same kind of image-based pop culture that we have now. Mm. And I just don't think the drummer's face would have been... Even within the kind of visually dominated culture of Beatlemania, even within that culture, I just don't think it would have been that significant. And I think a lot of that crowd would have not really got it. That's what I think. Well, also, uh, you know, famously, what ends up happening with Beatles live shows is the crowd are so loud they can't hear themselves play. So yeah. there, there's a thing where it's almost like the performance is secondary. The presence mm-hmm. is the, the, the key thing for the crowd to respond to. Uh, they probably go away with no drummer whatsoever because no one's really there. All they need is the opening chords well, they, and they'll just sort of They need certain them. signifiers in the sound yeah. and the visuals. Yeah. So like they need the hair, they right. need the suits. Exactly. Yeah. And if yeah. you had a fourth person just doing that in the background. Why don't you guys, why don't you guys record? Soon, take your feet off the table, thanks. Once you have those signifiers in place, I think that's enough for the crowd. Like, the crowd just need a couple of little prods and they're there. It's almost like group psychology. It's like they just want to be immersed in that group and to lose themselves amongst their peers. It's amazing to watch. It's such a social document. But what's interesting, though, is because the video I started watching, I thought it was the one that you'd intended us to watch, you don't see the drummer at all. I think it must be from the, I think it's from the Melbourne. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like one. So it's yeah. an empty drum kit. It's an empty drum kit initially, but there's a drummer. Bring, yeah, they've got to bring those, but like, I think at this point, they've just not put him on stage at all. And again, if you see the reaction of the crowd, no one's going, where's Ringo? No. They're all just screaming just the yeah. same, so they could get away with it. Next track is Nadia Rose, Squad. I'm rolling 10, yeah, up on that squad. That's what, that's squad. I'm rolling 10, yeah, up on that squad. That's what, that's squad. I'm only playing girl up in that squad. Fucking with my squad? I think not. not. Me and my bitches, we roll deep. And we always got green, so we pretty much peas in a pod. I was at the scene, had to flee from the cop. I go inside with no keys for the locks. Um, excuse me, madam, how did you get on the premises? Well, I came to kill off my nemesis, so I used my juju and I came up in the crevices. And bitches say they're bad, but I'm from where the fucking devil is. So if they get me mad, we're in the yard, disturbing residents. And we leave out the yard, up in the car, disposed to evidence. The thing I love about this, and it's a lot of things to love about this, I think, uh, is Surrey Street Market in Croydon. Oh, yeah. It took me a while to sort of identify. It looked familiar. I thought it might have been Deptford Market, but it's Surrey Street Market. And and then the video starts, and it's tremendous, isn't it? And yes, the video's great. And it's tremendous. You know, there's so much. Great outfit. Yeah. She's got this She's great, so like, kind of casual yes. charisma, hasn't yeah, she? Yeah, she's great. Like, on the track, 
and like on the video, the she's same like, sort yes. of. She's just so laid back, isn't she? So likable immediately, yeah. and, and like you know, uh, read sort of comparisons with people like it's very sort of Missy Elliott, and I'm like, I've got no problem at all with that. Yeah. And it's great. One of the things I love about it is like clearly there's an Adidas deal there in it because no one comes on screen as part of it uh, that isn't uh, in Adidas. Also, another thing I love about it is that they've clearly got no permission to film along there, and they've done nothing to secure. They've gone down there. 8 o'clock on a Sunday morning. They've just morning. done it one take, haven't they? Yeah, one take, yeah. 8 o'clock on a Sunday morning, with like blokes just like on their way to work or back home after a night it's out. It's great so looking like, in the details in the background. Yeah, isn't it? yeah, and they're just sort of, but it's great, they're just sort of working on going, I suppose people are just doing some formation dancing down Surrey Street Market. Mm. I'll just carry on walking. It's, uh, it's, but yeah, um, again, the, the performance. Also, another thing I find really charming about it is it's clearly all their mates. You know, for, for, for practical reasons, uh, but they, there's clearly a ranking thing. Yeah, yeah. All, all the good dancers, all, all their mates from dance class when she was ten get to go to the I front, and then a random friends go at the back. There's like one woman just carrying a child, isn't it? Like just to get her involved. But there's a really smart. I don't know if you spotted this, but a really smart sort of like technical fix they use as well, where they haven't got enough. You know, in inverted commas, good dancers. So there's a bit where the good dancers sort of form up to the front, and the camera sort of pushes in. To create, you have space around the sides, and they sort of drift into the back. And when the, the the frame pulls in on the crowd, they sort of sneak around behind the camera so they can mm. jump back in again. Yeah, yeah. So it's this really smart recycling. People like we get to use eight people twice to get impact, but without having to find sixteen exactly. people. Yeah, I mean really. she she really carries it. Doesn't oh, she? absolutely. Like, she's amazing. And so many little things as well. Um, the bit where she sort of like uh, lowers her head as someone sort of like leaps over. Just he's really smart. And like, the little boy is the policeman. It's just like charming all the way through. Um, an interesting thing I discovered reading around it because it reminded me of uh, uh, Know Me From the Stormzy track, which is a very similar one take walking through. Clearly, all your friends and family mm. uh, are, are involved, and uh, they're cousins. Yeah, she's uh, Stormzy's yeah. cousin, which is like uh, it's clearly like a, a familial thing in it. Like, how much is Virgos? About fiver. <laughs> yeah, it was excellent. I mean, it was funny. Uh, you were talking about the ranking of the dancers. To the point where, like at the back of the squad, there's like one or two moments where you spot like a couple of white girls, and one of them in particular is just not on it. She almost she, so she almost tipped everyone over, didn't she? She's so bad. Like, it's really hilarious. But, but it's great. Where she, they're obviously sort of like, ah, of course she yeah. can cover up. Yeah, like, yeah. You know. So Nadia Rose really carries video, but she also carries the track of it because in a typical way with grind tracks, I found that. I so I listened to this before I listened to the Fire in the Booth one. And because I've been watching so many sets, live sets recently, I've been really getting into them as opposed to the tracks, because the tracks I often find a little bit bland in terms of the music. And I found that a little bit with this, but her delivery, it kind of lifts it. Like, there's so many of those really distinctive UK rap lines. It's why I think UK rap is just light years ahead of US rap. You just get so many just little distinctive turns of phrase and reference points. We've talked about in a past episode... Tiny Tempers, so many clothes, I keep them at my nan's yeah, house. Yeah. In this one, there's a few lines like that. The, the, my favourite one is, uh, we got so much green, we're like uh, peas in a pod. You can think of that, you just don't get them in US rap. You yeah, just there's don't. definitely more humour in, yeah. in, in tracks like this, which is you know a great thing, I think. But having said that, there were a couple of bits, a couple of lines, uh, where I thought she said that the flow was similar to Eminem. Which is not saying you sort of naturally, but she sort of speeds up a couple of bits, and it sounded. Uh... I think he's percolated into a lot of rap yeah, over the last five, ten definitely. years. He was enormous, wasn't he? Yeah, he sort of. Yeah. He kind of, after he kind of fell away, he sort of 
but interesting to hear that influence is enormous. A right? black woman in London mm-hmm. at yeah. this time, you know, so there's so many sort of like moves that has mm. to make. And I'm not saying I don't think it's a. Well, she a, probably you know, just listened to him as a kid. Yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah, but and I don't think it's a conscious thing. She's like, I'll do this like Eminem. But yeah. it's just and and you know, obviously he's not the only person that speeds up verses. No, I think he, her his voice flow was so distinctive. Definitely, yeah. And there just a couple of lines, a couple of moments where there's an echo of that. Mm-hmm. There. But yeah, I, I, I absolutely love the track. Yeah. I, I, I think I listened to it five times in a row. The first, just finding new things in the video, finding new things in the lyrics, and I think it is, as you say, it's very polished, much more yeah. than a live performance. Really. But it's a, it's a really good pop song. Yeah. I think it's great. Mm-hmm. Did you like it? I liked it a lot too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So if I said to you, Steve, what is the uh, quintessential top of pops two track? What would be the first thing that jumped into your mind? Uh, probably something like Fleetwood Mac, the Chain, yeah. maybe. Really. I don't know. Like, what did you say, Stephen? You're familiar <laughs> with Top of the Pops too. You've been here long enough in uh, the UK. Yeah. <laughs> what TV did we watch in Ireland when we were young? Fresh, we watched, yeah, yeah. We watched Fresh off the boat over, over here. <laughs> um, top of the Pops too. Yeah. You've mm. never heard of Charlie Drake. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know, actually. Maybe Steve Harley pumping yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ah, So for me, it'd be either, I'd probably go first. I'd probably go Sparks. Right. This time oh yeah, yeah, for yeah. Us. yeah, And after that, probably Steve Harley and Cockney Rebel. It's that sweet spot in nineteen seventy-five. That's what it's all about. Top of the Pops too. It's great. Yeah. Oh, I would say David Bowie. Yeah, yeah. Starman. Yeah. Starman. Yeah, yeah, that's the yeah. one. Yeah, yeah. You've done it all. To give it the full title, make me smile. Brackets come up and see me. Regrets that now, I imagine. I don't. From what I've read about him, it doesn't sound like a man who regrets anything. Anything, <laughs> ah, does ah, Just does things, especially not the haircut of the coat. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so it came out in 1975. Number one hit, re-released in 1980, 1983, 1992, 1995, and then sort of infamously in 2015, he had a parking mm-hmm. ticket and a to- top yeah. gear. Top Gear were like, oh, why don't we, uh, he's got a parking ticket, let's get him in the charts. And that's when it, it wasn't a parking ticket, it was a fine for a speeding offence. Oh, was it? And in his public statement supporting the idea of Top Gear sort of went, oh, let's get this number one to help uh, this man who's incredibly wealthy, made a lot of money mm. for music, makes some more money for music, it's based unjust thing for definitely breaking the law. And um, Steve Harley made some sort of statement saying, uh, I'm happy to subsidise people who have got caught on this stretch on the, the swan knee. Yeah, yeah. Subsidise? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? That's not how fines work. You're not subsidising anything. So Steve Harley was born in Deptford, uh, or grew up in Deptford, one of the two. Went to Edmund Waller Primary School, Steve, around the corner from where we recorded many, oh, many episodes right, yeah, yeah. in Telegraph Hill, where I lived. And he went to Haberdasher Ask as well. So I never knew what this song was about. 
I always assumed it Sexual. was about a, yeah yeah I yeah, assume yeah. it's about a relationship with a, a woman where he's had his heart broken and it was either blue eyes why did you tell so many lies right yeah, yeah he's yeah. been betrayed but then can't perceive me maybe he's prepared to forgive her and that's the thing there's a sort of uh, listening to the song even closely it never occurs to me as anything other than that where it's you know, uh, you know, Carpus Emo was on us. Oh, there's a chance of reconciliation, and then by the end, it's like, no, there's no chance of reconciliation. Um, but I'm, I've, I've not read what it's about. But is it about a dog? No, no. it's about someone who's oh, very smart, we've been to running the, wild. We've been so completely trained. I think we've been so completely trained to hear songs in terms of men towards women, yeah. especially men towards kind of Absolutely. lying, cheating women. Yeah, and that's the way I heard it. I yeah. also because of the Mae West thing, you know, they come up and see me. You know that. Yeah, that yeah. It's like I just heard it. As I, said. I also I'll, I'll, almost thought it was about a prostitute or something. Come yeah, I thought it could be a smile. thing like where it's like um, he's he's got a rebound thing. Like the the, the uh, sort of verses about the woman's betrayed in the chorus yeah. is about a, a rebound thing. That yeah, he's helping him process the other woman that. and the, the yeah exactly woman. yeah. But um, uh, well, this might give you uh, a bit of a clue if I tell you that he describes it uh, himself uh, as a uh, as a finger pointing piece of vengeful poetry. Okay. So we have to rewind at this point. Before Steve Harley and Cockney Rebel, there's a band called Cockney Rebel, which is Steve Harley, uh, who decides he wants to make music and write songs, and he basically hires, not session musicians, musicians to form a band around him. But the deal is always, I will write all the songs. So they do the first album. It sells really well. But obviously, Steve Harley's making all the, the, the writing money off it. And the rest of the band go to him and say, well, we want to write songs as well. We're all musicians. Uh, and he's like, that was never the deal. And they're like, we really want to do this. And he's like, fine, you're all fired. So he sacks Cock- the rest of Cockney Rebel and starts a new band, Steve Harley and the Cockney Rebel, where he hires new people and says, you know what the deal is? And they're like, yeah, sure. We know what happens if we try and change this deal as well. So this whole song is directed at the former members of the band. Uh, and essentially the message is, oh yeah, come and see me after this. Make me smile. He's basically saying, "I'll laugh in your face because I'm definitely going to be." And when you like, that's true. When you listen to the lyrics as well, um, it's like all oh, this for a bit of metal. He's like, "All you want was money." I was like, "Well, you want money." Yeah, this, yeah, is, yeah. this is all about. But like, he's so. What I love about it, knowing that, is I mean, it's dreadful, isn't it? What a horrible thing to do. But um, when you read it, then the sort of the melodrama of it. You've broken every code. Not ever. They must have write some songs. Every code. Yeah, it is. Um, every code. It is a, a remarkable, I think, creative decision. And then the fact that, and this is where you, you kind of have to admire the guy. It's a cracking song, isn't it? Like, yeah. In terms of how it's produced, how it's structured, how it's performed. You know, to do that, rather than just doing some no long string guitar solo. You know, it's not, it's not Mr. Writer by the Stereophonics, is it? It's not. <laughs> oh, what a turgid piece of oh, crap that was! I will tell them. I mean, you've uh, kind of proved their point. <laughs> yeah. So, Stephen. Yeah. I live in Ireland now. You do. And in Ireland, there's an advert for Mace, the supermarket chain, that uses uh, this this track. And I don't know if you remember because it was it was done previously. I don't know if obviously these, these are all. Uh, promotional exercise that have happened while you've been living in England. But I wonder if you've ever been visiting Ireland and, and seen these tracks. So th- there's there's basically two iterations. The original one that uses the original track, where it's a man and a woman. And I think it's around that time, you know, when everyone's like, people will find true love in supermarkets. Mm. There's a man and a woman going around Mace and their eyes sort of meet. And it's like, you know, come up and see me at Mace and buy some apples and find, you know. I think which also would have confused me in terms of the meaning of the song. And I was like, this is a vengeful piece of uh, finger-pointing poetry. Why are they uh, <laughs> using it for like a, a love track? But now, this, I think last year, Mace have reissued the track and the advert. But this time, it's like a sped-up electronic thing. 
Uh, and what happens is you go to Mace and you start buying stuff and your head turns into a bright orange ball with a huge psychedelic smiley face on it. And the, the, the responses on uh, YouTube are great. Because people are going, I'll never shop at Mace again. What's this? <laughs> I was like, that's enough to be Oh, because the orange thing. Uh, <laughs> is that what you mean? No, I think they're just annoyed at how uh, annoying the advert is. So, um, yeah. Oh, hang on, was, is he involved in this? I mean, he's getting the money, isn't he? But like, I don't he's think the money. Of I don't think he hasn't re-sung the. No, no. It, well, no, it is essentially like the vocals are clearly just sped up, and then they just put like right. a, a sort of like. But the first one when it was come up to Mason, make me smile or whatever. Oh no, uh, there's no. It's it's the original track. They've right. done nothing to change. And they the just say like come to Mason. I think they just leave out the bits about uh, you know you've broken every code. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's just the chorus. Uh, it's just the bit you like. No, I haven't seen them. But just interesting. It is that thing of like. You know, I think it is a good example of uh, a successful song or a catchy yeah. song, a hit song. It lives on beyond. You know? Well, that's the thing. I may have actually seen them because that song has just been so part of the fabric for my whole life, basically, that it could easily have passed by my eyes in an ad like that. I just thought, oh, yeah, whatever. Yeah, it's that kind of song, isn't it? Mm. Stephen, can you talk to us about the vocals? The vocals? Yeah, what do you reckon? Well... Okay, so my memories of this song were always very warm. I loved this song growing up. Every time I heard it, Top of the Pops 2, whatever. Uh, oh yeah, I love this, great. Getting into it. Um, and then this is the first time I actually consciously went back and listened to it in quite a while. And I was 10% disappointed, I would say. And a large part of that is the vocals. Because there's a kind of a slurry, proto-Damon Alburn-esque, kind of semi-punk, um, semi-kind of like, mockney almost. And I know that's not necessarily... Like he's actually a cockney, but it's a, there's some yeah. elongation that doesn't need to be. There, although there's, saying there's that we don't know how well off his parents were, do we? He might have been. Yeah, he might. Well, so. anyway, I felt like whether he was like had the credentials or not, I feel like there's a kind of a mannerism. Like there's, it's very mannered. It's very self-conscious in how he delivers it, and I just wasn't convinced by his his aggression or his vitriol. And I felt like he was drawing things out and physically and vocally kind of slurring things. In such a way that I just thought, ooh, I don't like this. You know, I wasn't quite there with it. Um, and it was undermining some of the work the music was doing. You know, the music is quite well put together. It has this little trick that runs through it, which, um, if you want to know, it's like, if you want to get all formal about it, you could describe it as a, a doubly deferred tonic. So it's like, basically, that's a fancy way of saying you are, you're always expecting it to resolve onto a chord, but it never quite gets there. And you think in the chorus it's going to do that, but actually it... It doubly defers it because it actually slips in another chord where you were hearing one chord, so you never quite get to the chord you think you're going to get to. Or you do, but it's not in, in the way that you, you think you're going to get to it. So the music's doing all this really interesting work. And like you said, there's this really interesting guitar solo, which is over a completely different chord sequence for some weird reason, which is very unusual because a guitar solo is usually just over the same chords of the verse or possibly the chorus. So there's lots of interesting things going on in music, but then in the voice, I found it really let it down. I thought the stopping as well. Uh, oh yeah, that's yeah, that's the bit. I, I didn't notice that about the deferred chords because how would I? But uh, I, I know when it stops, and I was like, "That's really good." Yeah. Oh yeah, there's a there's a real use of space and mm. phrasing, which is yeah. quite unusual, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And apparently that came out in the I was just reading, came out in the process of making it with the producer Alan Parsons. They they very much collaborated on how that was going to be put together and staged. So like, the music is really well stage managed in that way. The voice, I don't know. I really like it, oh, and that, and and listen to it closely. I. I don't think I'd ever noticed how ridiculous the voice was before. But as I say, <laughs> so when I say enjoy, I don't think like oh, this is, it's like for me uh, having listened to it closely and knowing the background now, 
I, I, I bracket it in the same way as like Charlie Drake. It's a comedy record, isn't it? Like, mm. You can't take it seriously. The fact that he thinks it's like vengeful poetry uh, just makes it hilarious to me. It's like it's like self parody, isn't it? Yeah. We did this for metal. You've broken every cut. Co- like, what's wrong with you? Breaking every. Yeah. Time. Just sort of unbelievable, isn't it? But I do. I I I think I love the song even more now, knowing that it is this ridiculous. Well, it's great to hear it as like personal. Yeah, vengeance. Yeah, like, that yeah. gives it a whole weight, doesn't it? Yeah, definitely. But I just have this prejudice against like when people sit really outside the line of the melody. I don't mind when it's done in like a subtle way, but you know, he's like, yeah, yeah. I just hear that as someone trying to build in an impact, and it's just unconvincing to me. Which artist would you would you pick to do a cover of this, Stephen? Not <laughs> any not artist, Pete no. not Damon Albarn, <laughs> not um, any punk singer. Mm. I don't know. Actually, it's a good, really good question. Who I think an interesting one would be who would be the least likely uh, artist that you well, imagine would do it. Johnny Rotten. It's not far off that, is it? it well, that's the thing. It's, yeah. It does well it, because it's 1975, and obviously Ramones are already getting going at that point, and MC5, and there's been lots of Anigi Papa, been lots of kind of punks like music, but it is early enough that like you can't really hear it as punk parody. You can definitely hear it as Beatles parody. Uh, Rubber Soul, you know, you won't see me. Ooh la la, all that stuff. He's ripped that out. He's also ripped out the you know the faces kind of. Let's call a spade a spade. Black woman vocal backing, so it's like he's put it together from all very identifiable sources. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I was a bit disappointed listening back to this. I have to say. Do you have information on cover versions? Ah, oh, do you? I, I know it's been covered a few times. Mm. Uh, Duran Duran had it as a staple in their oh, live set God. for a long time. Yeah. Uh, and, um, oh, Erasure did. That's what I was saying about the least likely yeah. uh, thing. Uh, Erasure did a version that uh, I think ended up on like their greatest hits album because like they love it so much and they're really pleased with it. But um, uh, Steve Harley's personal favourite is the Wedding Present cover, oh. which is basically a punk version. Yeah. So really, and he's like... Uh, the only one who really captures the vitriol. Yeah, that's a better job than you with your, <laughs> your comedy voice and your ridiculous lyrics. So I'm always curious where, you know, these bands, you know, it's decades since they've had like real success and, you know, I know people don't really like the word anymore, but relevance. Mm-hmm. So I'm always curious what venues they play in London. So you you could, oh, you could have 50 guesses and you wouldn't guess where Steve Harley's next band in London. He's got a residency. Uh, Hang on, wait, let's guess. Yeah, go on, go on. DIY space for no. <laughs> Where's the arena? It's it's got a residency at Peter Express Hoven. <laughs> right. And, and you also would it's the Steve Harley Acoustic Trio. And you also would not guess how much it costs. I'm gonna guess uh, eighty pounds. Thirty pounds. Is it though? But, no, but that's gonna be eighty it's forty nine fifty. Well do you and know it's what? seventy quid if you want to meet him. There you go. Highballed me. <laughs> um, and so it's the Steve Carly Acoustic Trio, right? And James Lassell, how do you pronounce that? L A S C E W L E S. Lassell, yeah. Lassell. Yeah, he's the pianist, right? He's 61st in line for the throne. His, his dad is the Queen's cousin. Anyway, just to finish off, yeah, here's a picture of Steve Carly. Carly's... the Cockney Rebel anymore. You've got to change the name at that point. Once you've got someone in line for the throne, yeah, you're like, right. is it the Cockney Rebel? Definitely yeah. not. Definitely not. So, just to end things, here's a picture of Steve Harley's uh, 1992 album, Yes You Can. Jesus. Beautiful man. Google That's it. aha level goodness. It is, isn't it? Yeah. Why did you get me to draw it? That was a mistake. <laughs> no, you can't, Steve he, Harley. He only gave me three coloured pencils to use. 
I think I did a great job. It is like Obama clearly robbed the slogan, didn't he? <laughs> it's like it's off the Karen uh, Dash tin, isn't it? Our final track is the KLF, Last Train to Transcentral. Okay, everybody, lie down on the floor and keep calm. talking about the KLF, I love thinking about the KLF, I love listening to the KLF. But I never knew that they had any link to South London. This is one of those mm. ones where you get to drag someone yeah, in yeah. And, and talk about them. I've chosen Last Train to as the track for us to focus on, but essentially what we're going to be talking about is the Stadium House trilogy and Justified and Ancient with Tommy Winner afterwards. But I've chosen this one because I discovered in my research for the show that Transcentral rather than just being the mythical place yeah. of, uh, of Moomoo that they allude to in the songs, um, was also what they called uh, Jimmy Corti's squat studio in Stockwell, where they recorded these songs that went on to nice. become, that made them the biggest selling singles act in the world that's in how, 1991. That's what people kept saying. I don't know how... I, yeah, I have no idea. I, I mean, it's only got to number two, so... But I, guess, <laughs> I guess number one... You know, well, they had the four big hits. Yeah. I don't know about that. I don't know if I buy that. But they were big at that point. Well, well you know, wherever... I mean, in 1992, they become... the They, they win a Brit Award, mm-hmm. which only happens if you've sold a lot of records. Yeah. The yeah. Brit Awards are Brit not Brit Awards are there to certify commercial success. Absolutely. So they're, they're, they're just like a, a huge deal. And, and another aspect that I love about it, again, digging uh, deeper into the research, you know, one of the things we do on this show is... You know, try. Oh, well, I think personally, try and accentuate the positives about South London. Dig up the things that people don't necessarily like to talk about South London. And, Charlie Drake. <laughs> yeah, the things we can be proud of. But um, there's a great quote from uh, Jimmy Courtney where he talks about Transcentral, uh, and he says, uh, "I hated it. Uh, I was just stuck there. We couldn't afford to live or record anywhere else. But I hated it. And I think when you sort of listen to the KLF and read about them, they're so motivated by anger." and dissatisfaction that I quite like the idea that being in South London annoyed them it wasn't good for them in a sense of like directly them enjoying and having a great time and making them comfortable to make music it was more you know they're, 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 they're pricked by it they're annoyed by it and that sort of provokes uh, mm. the music what, what do you feel about the KLF track do you have any feelings no I don't to be honest really I've you, you wearing the time no, I mean I've heard people say burnt money and stuff. And I think Steve's talking about it on the show, but I mean this track is familiar. But like, I don't want to intrude on you guys having a conversation about them. Well, the thing that, that I found quite interesting was um, what's the name of the Swedish DJ who died recently? Avicii. Avicii, yeah. Like I'd never heard of Avicii, mm. never knowing you. I've seen the Lego movies, so I've certainly heard an Avicii track, 
and uh, wake me up when things are over and I listened to just when he died I was like oh I wonder what that sounds like and listen it just left me completely cold and I was like maybe I'm not really into uh, Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> so I listened to a couple of Avicii tracks and did nothing for me. And I was like, oh, maybe it's like, you know, I'm not that into dance, electronic stuff. And then I listened to all the careless mm. stuff. And I guess it is nostalgic, so I remember it from the time. Yeah. But I absolutely love it musically. I think it's tremendous. It's incredible. It's so yeah. wonderful. When I was, so this was 91, 92, so I was kind of 10. And my eldest brother listened to only three bands. They were R.E.M., NWA and KLA. <laughs> I, I actually genuinely think the fact that they were all acronyms is just a coincidence. <laughs> but he would, so he was the eldest, and he would just blast this album in particular, White Room, so loudly, all day, every day. But I never got sick of it. I was obsessed. This and Straight Out Compton, and then like everything by R.E.M. for years. But those two albums that year, around that, around that year, just like endless. So like when I hear it now, it's like a, you know, a Proustian Madeline. It's just like, I'm just taken back to 91, 92, just sitting there listening, wide-eyed. And I just the whole world of the KLF at that point, I didn't understand it. I just thought, what is this? It was like industrial. It was very American to me. Like all the things I was seeing felt very American. There was um, there was rappers. There was a singer who, who seemed American. There was an accent to it, let's yeah. say. That was just American, like transcendental. I know it was this mythic place, but that's clearly evoking America and as you say they don't sing on it they, exactly. the, the so vocals like, they get in they sit in the background yeah the crowd noises the, it, like, it felt very like Rhythm Nation it felt very it just felt very America so like it was so um, it was so exotic to me it was so powerful I didn't know what they were talking about there seemed to be this world of like self reference because like across all the tracks they'd just be like chanting Moo Moo in the background yeah. and known as the jams and just like, so I, I just bought wholesale Bought like hook, line, and sing, and the videos as well. The videos, that, yeah. Where there's a huge sort of element of like dressing up, visual presentation, yeah. A lot of tropes that carry it was a whole along. World, wasn't yeah, it? absolutely. But it was all about assemblage. It was like it wasn't like here's a track, here's a track, here's an album. We're going to release an album next year. I'm yeah. the songwriter behind it. It was like just this world of like images and sounds, which all kind of meshed together in this really weird way. Because like a lot of the tracks you'd hear as a mix, wouldn't you? Yeah. You, you wouldn't hear them as distinct tracks almost. Uh, and a lot of them were building the same sounds. Like you hear that yeah, crowd sample over and over again. The air horns, the the same kind of beats. And so, like, I didn't understand it, but I, I bought into it in a way you might buy into Lord of the Rings or some other fancy book like that. It was a world I wanted to be part of. You know, it had the American thing. It had the kind of post-apocalyptic thing. It had, it seemed to be talking a language I didn't really quite get. And but but still be very catchy. Like the stadium house thing worked really well to me as a as a concept. Um, so like I just bought a hook, line, and sinker, and when I hear it now, I still like yesterday. I went back and for an hour, I just read into the band's history, and I just I, I immerse myself all over again. And it's a treat, isn't it? Like it's such a, a rich story from yeah. from start to finish. And as I say that the videos as well, like again these sort of visual tropes, like the the pyramid that they form yeah. for the, the the singers to stand on, um, and it's a mix of these sort of uh, sort of eyes wide shut style you know, ritualistic robes. Yeah. But then people in sort of uh, tribal outfits and then them just wearing these like fishermen's jackets with a horn uh, on their head. But then just odd things like, there's a great, I forget which video it's in, but Ricardo DeForce, the vocalist, is singing into a mobile phone. But it's like one of the old original brick mobile phones. Um, and then they're driving around in their police car. Um, and it is like, 
as I say, it's such a rich story, and yeah. and they're, they're you know a lot of it is based on uh, you know their love of discordianism and situationism. So you don't know what to take seriously and what not to take seriously. It's it's pure performance, isn't yeah. it? Like you know, in the incarnation before the KLF, they're the Time Lords, and they record a song, and I think this is an interesting music as well, where it's essentially the Doctor Who theme tune mixed with a Gary Glitter song. And then they, it gets number one. They write the manual, this book about how to guarantee a number one single. And essentially, the message is: take two songs that yeah, people are really familiar with, put them together, and people will buy your new song because they it, it, it appeals to them and makes them feel comfortable. Um, but while they they are the Time Lords doing this Doctor Who thing, um, they're going around in this police car that they've painted like the TARDIS, and they declare it to be four Time Lords, an active member of the band who talks to them, tells them how to make music. But then when they're the care left. They paint it in black and white, and they're like, "Yeah, he's still called Four Time Lord, but he doesn't talk to us anymore. Uh, but we still drive around in it." And then you, uh, I read that they bought that um, after the filming of Superman for the Quest for Peace in Milton Keynes. They bought this American police car that had come over to England, and then just used it in all their videos uh, forever. And, and as I say, it's so much fun, but there yeah. is anger underneath yeah. it all with the style of the music, the bombast. Yeah, it's amazing though because like. As you were talking there, I was thinking about how inauthentic it all is. Like, it's so self-consciously, yeah, like, yeah. theatrical and fake. But put it all together, and this is what the amazing thing about pop music is, it just works. You just buy it. It's like Lady Gaga at her best. It was, like, throwing together symbols which made no sense together and didn't really mean anything, but just meant so much because it didn't mean anything. Like, it wasn't just, like, one meaning she was trying to evoke. It was just all these different signifiers which were being stitched together in a haphazard way. And it's like you watch her some of her early videos and you're kind of going, what is she doing? She's wearing seven different outfits. One of them's a mermaid. One of them's a, a, like a, a steampunk robot thing. One of them's completely different. But you watch it together and, you, and you've kind of, your brain puts them together and invents some sort of, some sort of narrative. There's like a total balance it. across everything. Yeah, it's exactly. All it's it's and, a collage thing. Similarly with this as well, it's a thing of like, this is so clearly manufactured. Yeah, um, and it feels like with the, the what they were doing, like they do that thing where they like take these similar sounds, and you'll get, definitely get a hit record. But it feels like after that, they're determined to make it as weird as possible and yeah. still have hit records uh, to the point where they do these three tracks and become incredibly successful. So for the fourth one, they hire Tammy Wynette. Do you remember this Tammy Wynette song? So they hire Tammy you Wynette, do. who's like a country music legend. And they're ancient, and they're going to rule the land. We're going to the top. Justify. <laughs> and you know this. But so, so, and this is the thing. They get Tammy Wynette in, and it's immediately, and that's immediately brilliant, because why is Tammy Wynette yeah. in my office? And it's not where she can sort of go, oh, she's going to be great. Because they get her to sing lines. They're justified and ancient. They're going to rule the land. They're justified and they're ancient. They drive an ice cream van. Like, she's not <laughs> thinking there's anything. But she's clearly having a great time as well. Like, this is the thing. And I think that was them attempting to self-sabotage. But yeah. then that was a hit record as well. So eventually, you know, obviously... Well, it's right, it's right. The know? only way they can self-sabotage is at the Brit Awards in 19... Do you know about the story of the Brit Awards in 92? They go to perform and are invited to sort of headline, essentially. Um, so just to scupper things completely, as a backing band, they hire a group called Extreme Noise Terror who are a noise punk band, and they get um, Barney from Napalm Death to do guitar. Uh, and they're going to go on stage at the Brit Awards and just do this horrific death metal version of their songs. Um, Jonathan King is running the Brit Awards at the time, which tells you what sort of time <laughs> we're talking at. Um, but the, the, essentially, the key part of their performance is they buy a vat of sheep's blood from an abattoir. And at the end of the song, the plan is to dump that 
on the front row of the Brits or the record executives. And Jonathan King's like, Jonathan King probably like trying to act like cool and be like, listen, I haven't got a problem. <laughs> <laughs> but you just can't drop sheep's blood uh, from Avatar and people at the Brit Awards. And they're like, we probably will though. And he's like, you can't. You can't. And they're determined to still do it. But then Extreme Noise Terror, as well as being uh, anarchistic punks, are also vegans. So they say, we can't be part of the performance if you're going to drop sheep's blood on people. And they're like, okay, we won't drop sheep's blood on people. Then. So instead... Uh, they perform their uh, noise attack on the Brit Awards. Um, Jimmy Courtney's going around playing the guitar with a massive horn sticking out of the front of his head. And Bill Drummond comes out, uh, smoking a cigar, wearing a kilt, uh, and with an AK-47 loaded with blanks that he fires into the crowd. But no one's been told about this. So <laughs> it's just a, a madman turned up with a machine gun to uh, fire into the crowd. Um, they come off stage... Uh, their producer Scott Peering announced over the PA the care left of left the music business. Uh, they don't go to the Brit Awards after party, or they don't go into the Brit Awards after party. But while they're at the Avatar, they bought a dead sheep, um, and they attach a note to the sheep that says, "You did this to yourselves." You spell E W E and roll it down the stairs of the party and then go home. Uh, and then about a week later, amazing. delete their back catalogue and yeah. announce that they are no longer part of the music business. And then a year after that take the last million pounds left of their money and burn it on the Scottish Island and uh, film it. The Caliph are brilliant, essentially. Yeah. And it sort of came from Stockwell, in a way, yeah. which I think is uh, remarkable and beautiful. Do you think all that... It's, it kind of reminds me of Richie Edwards from the Manic Street Preachers carving for real into his arm. It, do you think it's a bit like you protest a bit too much there, lads? I think it's just <laughs> enough. <laughs> I, there's, there's like, there's no part of it that I'm not a hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, like, but there's a lot of humour like, in it, though. Right? Absolutely, yeah. that's the thing. It, you know, they drive an ice cream van. It's hilarious. Yeah. Like the video, he's singing into a mobile phone. It's hilarious, isn't it? But like, it's still part of the spectacle. It's Absolutely. Like, yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. What? Of course, it's an age-old political question, but it's like, if you're part of the spectacle, are you changing the spectacle? Is it just contributing? Is it just like uh, an accepted? transgression it's like yeah, yeah I think, I think that was their frustration like their frustration was they've tried to be as weird yeah. and odd and uh, difficult as possible and like and you're inviting us to uh, and, and, and apparently afterwards um, the uh, Piers Morgan in the paper the next day uh, described them as Wallies or something yeah. uh, and they were like brilliant and Jonathan King went no I thought it was legitimate and uh, Scott Perry said that for us was the real low point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when they were like, we have to just delete our back catalogue and but stop no matter what this. you do, it will always be accepted. Oh, the, of course. The system will yeah. find a way to yeah. incorporate So they just have to remove themselves from it completely. Yeah. Yeah. So did it achieve anything other than being a really good art prank? I don't think so, no. I mean, there's no... Because I don't think there's a legacy to, yeah. to, to what they do in terms of people directly linking them as, as, as inspiration. I mean, but I think as a, as a moment, or as a series of moments, I think it's beautiful. Yeah, like as concept art or as like situationist anarchist art it's it's up there but I guess that form in itself is like inherently limited because it's like it can only really give back to the system that it tries to critique you know that's that but the KLF are amazing stadium house get into it Ricardo de Force (laughs) alright thanks for listening everyone you can find more episodes on southlandhardcore.com Unless we decide to delete our back catalog, so <laughs> set fire to our last five pound of show money. Uh, Twitter.com slash SLHC. Stephen, thanks for coming. Thank you. If you want to get Stephen's book, yeah, go to uh, any good bookshop and uh, ask them to order it. Yeah. <laughs> What's it called, Stephen? Sounds of the Underground.
The Girls Aloud story. <laughs> if you want to know more about me, if you're really intrigued, go to my staff page on Goldsmith's Music and you'll see all my bits there. Stephen, of course, is also the uh, co-host of Talking Musicology, a podcast on the Holdfast Network, holdfastnetwork.com. What can people expect to hear on Talking Well, it's vaguely Stephen. dormant at the moment just because I've had a uh, child. Uh, Congratulations. Did, thank you. We just did an episode about Maria Callas, her voice and her weight, so look out for that. Another uh, RM link, of course, isn't it? She's mentioned R.E.M. Maria Callas, 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 Callas,